Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. By the year 1777, the British Empire was fighting a losing battle. Sensing the rebellion in North America was still a regional flare-up, General John Burgoyne set off to slice the continent in half. In what would be called the Saratoga Campaign, 10,000 British soldiers invaded the colony of New York from their base in Quebec and seemed all but unstoppable. But, in a dramatic turn of fortunes, the Patriot commander Horatio Gates defeated Burgoyne and gave the fledgling revolution new life at the battles of Saratoga later that fall. The consequences would be drastic, and the small insurrection that began in Boston would soon spread across the globe. On this episode, we discuss 1777, the year of the hangman. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime, the very first episode of the year 2015. I'm your host as always, Brady Kreitzer. On season 3 of the series we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, where all of my books are available at BradyKreitzer.com. And for everything Wartime on the web, you may visit WartimePodcast.com. Before we begin this very important episode of Wartime, because it is the first of the year, uh, I do want to make a few uh, a quick announcements, so you can humor me or fast-forward. Uh, it's completely up to you. Uh, but I will say that in the holiday season, we've seen a real uptick in, in donations, and I've really been uh, taken back by them. Uh, I know that uh, many of you enjoy the show. I certainly enjoy making it. Uh, but to receive the kind of feedback that I have has really uh, made me understand uh, how this podcast is growing. And it's doing exactly what I hoped it would do. It's really filling, I hope, a void on the web where there really isn't otherwise. But because of those donations, we've been able to upgrade some of the studio equipment, um, and I'm learning the ropes with that. This is our very first recording with all this new stuff. Uh, so be patient, uh, bear with me, we'll uh, find our rhythm once again. But 2015, again, is going to be a really great year I'm really excited about. As I mentioned in my, uh, my mid-season catch-up, uh, I am filming a television series uh, for the Pennsylvania Cable Network, exploring battlefields all across the state of Pennsylvania. You will have access to that uh, here on the podcast if you don't live within the state itself. Uh, also, my latest book, Hessians, uh, will be released uh, in April or May of 2015 by West Home Publishing. So I'll keep you abreast of how that's going. We're in the middle of the editing process. So there is a cover I really wish I could show you because I'm, I'm really impressed with it. But uh, you'll get that as well all in good time. But enough about me. 
Welcome back. Hopefully you had a nice holiday season, a restful holiday season. We all need that. Uh, hopefully maybe you caught up on some good reading uh, or podcast listening uh, in the meantime. Today's episode is a really, really important episode uh, for the future of this season. Because hopefully by now you've learned that the American Revolution that we all know and love growing up, the very easy event, the very simple event, the us versus them, the big versus small, the David versus Goliath, doesn't really exist except for in our minds. We know that the American Revolution, because of what we've been talking about to this point, is far more complicated than anything we've ever really studied uh, in the general context of our lives. I mean, if you're not someone who really digs into serious history, uh, if you're one of the people who just enjoys the time period, one of the things that I love about it is you learn something new almost every time you study it. And there always seems to be that direct line to our own modern stance in the world. Uh, the American Revolution, I think, is on the uptick. I believe the American Revolution, because of films, because of uh, television shows, because of new books being written every day, uh, is really seeing a resurgence. It's not going to surpass the American Civil War in popularity, but I think it's going to make a competitive second place in the minds of most readers today uh, in sort of the 21st century. But the American Revolution, again, as you know by this point, is very different than what we originally thought before we started this season of wartime. There are many layers, there are many subtle nuances to it. It's very complicated. And we tend to think of colonial America as very simple. And a lot of that is because when we make it simple, we can manipulate it and set it to our own agendas. Uh, but this is an important episode because it's going to change the direction of the war. Where it's fought, why it's fought, and to a lesser extent, how it's fought. Uh, you're going to see new people fighting this war. People that we don't typically uh, fit into our own sort of smaller version of the historical narrative. 1777, the year of the hangman. Very important. The war will change. It will become a much more international war from this moment on. Now, when we last left off, just for some quick uh, redundancy, for some quick review, it's a new year after all. Uh, what do we see? Well, we left behind the year 1776, and what we saw was the American Revolution in spirit was already won in that the Declaration of Independence, this great sort of frothing forward of ideas, was completed. The American colonies, at least the 13 we talked about, uh, we'll get into the others in a bit, uh, had declared their independence from Britain. It was this great, wonderful exercise of Enlightenment thought. That's finished. And as I said in previous uh, episodes, that to me is the revolution. What we're going to talk about now is the defense of that revolution, the war of the American Revolution, which I have a feeling many of you are more interested in. I get it, trust me, uh, moving forward. The revolution is the document. It's the idea. What we're dealing with now is the larger sense of it, the larger defense militarily of it. And quite frankly, in the year 1776, it is not going well. What we saw was George Washington at the helm of a relatively modest group of rebels. Uh, in fact, less than 10,000 sometimes, and his army's getting smaller. It's the winter of 1776, moving into 1777, and the American uh, Continental Army has already been pushed out of 
uh, New York City and its surroundings. Uh, they had an occupation of Manhattan Island, but General William Howe rolled into uh, the harbor where the Statue of Liberty stands today with the largest single invasion fleet that we have seen in the history of the British Empire. Uh, and at the Battle of Long Island, William Howe was very successful. There were overtures of peace, but nothing that came to fruition. George Washington and his army was on the run, and it was not looking promising. They had very uh, low supplies, they had very little money, and probably even less hope. Some would say this was the darkest hour of the American Revolution. Where we did leave off was something that occurred in late 1776 and early 1777, which was George Washington's great tremendous victory of the year, Trenton and Princeton in New Jersey. The reality, as we talked about, was it was something of a low blow by the uh, the minds of the British who were watching. But again, remember, when you're fighting an insurgent war, a guerrilla war, an unconventional war, if you play by the opponent's rules, you lose. This will bring us to 1777. One of the things I want you to be very clear about, and this is not necessarily an indictment of the American Revolution as far as tactics and strategy goes, but more of an insight into the 18th century, is that there are a few rules you never break as a military commander if you can avoid it. Unless, of course, you were a very desperate commander like George Washington. In that case, you do what you have to to survive. But some of the rules are as follows, and this will really carry over all the way until World War I in some cases. Uh, but the general rules are this. You don't fight at night uh, because you can't see who you're necessarily shooting at. There's no lights, so odds are you'll end up hurting more of your own people than the uh, opposition. And if you can avoid it, you don't want to fight in winter because, again, so much of this, when you study it, is about logistics. It's about soldiers marching. It's about rations. Uh, it's about how far you can travel in one day. As we said, an army marches on its stomach, but I kind of think that's a little more to it than that. They really march on the hard work of a lot of people following the camp, people who cook, people who supply them. It's a very uh, huge ordeal, a military campaign. And in 1776, in the wintertime, what you should be doing, if you are William Howe in, in, in New York, if you're George Washington encamped in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, you want to be in camp. Because marching through the snow under these treacherous conditions is not good for anybody, uh, not you or the opponent, especially not Washington in that case. So when you look at wars of the time period, wintertime is sort of a fresh start uh, uh, in every war. The army's going to encampment. They may plan in the winter time, uh, but for the most part, it's it's an act of survival at that point. You position yourself where you are and you remain there, and that's what's going to happen in North America uh, in the winter of 1776 and 1777. But just because the armies aren't moving, and this is very important, it doesn't mean that the larger strategists back home aren't also sort of manipulating uh, and and planning and scheming along the way. And one of the biggest problems that the British will have in this war early on uh, is that there's uh, maybe you can say too many uh, chefs in the kitchen. Uh, there's a little too much uh, thinking. It's, it's uh, paralysis by analysis in a lot of ways. But back in London, what's going on? Well, here's what we see. For the British, you have to remember taking their view because it's the view we'll take here. I think it offers a more complete view, and it's quite frankly the one you don't often have. Their view is that this is a rebellion, 
that needs to be stopped quickly. You know, as the benefit of, of history, the benefit of hindsight, I guess you could say, we know this war will go on for almost seven years. We also know what happens in the end. And we sort of start from the end in that way, and we work our way backwards. And that's a big mistake because you lose context, right? The who, what, where, when, and why. So if we position ourselves as British administrators in the 18th century, especially at the beginning of 1777, really January through uh, March and April, uh, what you're seeing is you want to end this war fast because rebellions are infectious. They spread. You don't want this war going to, God forbid, 1783 like it will. I mean, this shows you somewhere along the way this gets fouled up pretty bad. So in 1777, the British are really looking to, uh, I think, adjust their overall strategy uh, and crush the American rebellion as quickly and as painlessly and as cheaply as possible. One of the issues they have is that the strategy they're going to use in 1775 and 76 to fight the insurgent Americans is one they believe correctly is not working. You know, it's sort of an amazing thing when you study this war. The British know exactly uh, what's going on, why it's happening all along the way, but they almost can't get out of their own way. They're obstructing themselves uh, with the decisions that they make. But in 1777, they believe they should throw out the entire uh, game plan, so to speak. They've been using against the Americans and craft something new, a do-over, a fresh start. What do we know they have? Well, we know in 1777, to begin the year, they control the major cities uh, of the American Northeast. They control, they control New York. And again, not to rehash some redundancy from previous episodes, but as far as that goes, that's par for the course. Every time a major world empire or superpower rolls into a foreign region, they make the same mistake. Capture the cities, you'll capture the country. Well, not exactly. And what they have so far in occupation previously of Boston uh, and now of New York has gone to show them. Uh, that's not enough. They do know New York will be important. Because they know that New York will be, till the end of the war, a major supply depot for them. When they want to ship new men, new manpower, new weapons, new supplies into America, they have a direct line into the continent in New York. They'll hold that. They'll keep that uh, until they're forced to abandon it. They already had to abandon Boston. But one other thing they control, which we only touched on briefly in 1775, the discussion of that, uh, is the cities of Montreal and, more importantly, Quebec. Uh, in Canada. Now, geography is going to be really important here. And I'm going to tweet out helpful maps and, and uh, battle configurations as we release these. So, again, by Twitter account, at Brady Kreitzer, you can just search Wartime Podcast. Uh, that's what it's labeled under. You can find that. You'll have everything you need there. But geography is really important here because Quebec and New York City don't seem to have much in common at this point, at least for most Americans today. But when you visualize North America the way that I would like you to to understand this time period, a wild, vast wilderness with built-in superhighways, rivers, lakes, streams, uh, you'll see that New York City, Manhattan, and Quebec City actually have a great deal in common. Because you could theoretically get on a boat in either one of those places. Uh, and with only minor portage, that is, walking across land, you could connect the two together. So understanding that geography, the geomorphology of the land, is going to be really important here. So the question becomes, what connects those two places? 
Well, we have a lot of listeners on the island of Manhattan today. The geography really hasn't changed much. But I want you to think about the rivers that surround Manhattan Island. You have the East River, obviously to the east. But then on the western side, you have a very different river. I think a river that's much more New York, in my opinion. The Hudson River. Now, when you look at the Hudson River, ask yourself, where does it go? Well, you know if you follow it north, you'll go further into what we call upstate New York today. Uh, and continue it. In fact, what you'll find is that it goes very far north, almost to Lake George, which connects directly to the much larger and significant Lake Champlain. Lake Champlain will effectively cross over uh, into Canada as far as the waterways that connect. Now, after the Richelieu River, which is the northern tip of Lake Champlain, connects directly to the St. Lawrence, what that means is Again, what cities on the St. Lawrence? Well, Quebec and Montreal. What that means is you have an interconnected waterway system. Now, if you listen to our discussion previously of, uh, say, a man like Ethan Allen of the Green Mountain Boys, uh, or uh, the discussion in uh, Season 1 of Wartime, where we talked about the Seven Years' War, that's no secret in 1777. That's considered to be probably the single most vital waterway for the British Empire in North America throughout the entire war. Because, again, think about it. They have a stronghold of Quebec, no doubt. We talked about that. Then they have this new sort of launching point in Manhattan. When you're talking about an age of logistics, how do we move men, men, supplies, ships, all of those things, as quickly as possible, rivers are the key. So when 1777 begins, one of the things that the British will do is really emphasize, uh, almost exclusively, in fact, that they should take full command of what we'll call the Lake Champlain-Hudson River Corridor, because that would connect the forces, about 8,000 of them, that are stationed in Quebec itself, Quebec City, with uh, William Howe's forces in Manhattan. Understanding that is really going to be key here. But now we have to talk a little bit of ideology, again, a little bit of mindset. How do these people view the war? Now, this is going to be complicated. Uh, but if you've listened to all the episodes of Wartime from Season 1, especially the episode where we discuss the American colonies and how they're different, this will actually make a lot of sense to you. But the way the British view this war in 1777 is not the way we view it today, uh, as far as a general popular culture goes, as far as a societal understanding. Again, we view it as us versus them, in many cases the entire would be United States versus all of the British Empire. But it wasn't one of those things. When the British thought of this war, they thought of this rebellion as a rebellion really based almost exclusively in New England. They saw Boston as the beating heart of this rebellion. And again, they are a, a, a world power that has uh, numerous colonies around the world. I mean, dozens and dozens of colonies. Look at North America. We always say there's 13 colonies in North America uh, because it fits our narrative, but that really isn't the case because don't forget, all of Quebec, all of Canada is a royal colony. Uh, look at Florida, East Florida and West Florida. Those are colonies, and we, we're going to talk more about them in the future. But that's 16 colonies on North America proper right there, only 13 of which have joined this rebellion. And a lot of the southern colonies, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina... They haven't necessarily been real gung-ho about it either. And don't even talk about the 13 British colonies in the Caribbean, the other 13 colonies, as we'll call them. 
So it's much bigger than we think. Uh, and that's important you understand that moving forward. So when the British view the war, they view it as a New England problem. Uh, and they want to deal with it as a New England problem, which by 1777 uh, has sort of come and gone. Uh, the patriot sentiment has moved into places like New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania because of the actions that the British have taken there. Uh, they sort of shot themselves in the foot in that regard. But if you capture Lake Champlain, Lake George, and the Hudson River, just visualize it on a map if you have one. What's due east of that water system? What's due east is Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, what will be Vermont. Uh, it's New England. So the idea is, I guess we could call, uh, and this is overplayed, but it's important, cutting the head off the snake. The British want to capture that waterway corridor running north to south and sever New England from the rest of the 13 colonies. And in that regard, they think they'll be ending the revolution right then and there, nipping it in the bud. Well, it's probably uh, at least a year too late for that. But that way of thinking, that ideology, that mentality, is how they're going to craft their entire attack in 1777. So in 1777, what do we have? Let's talk a little bit about uh, the strategic situation of the British. We know that General William Howe controls uh, all of New York City as we know it. And we know he's got a sizable fleet there. Howe has big plans in 1777. He believes that New York City is the perfect place for him to position himself. And in a lot of ways he's right. Because it gives him two viable options of attack in 1777. He could move north, up the Hudson, and capture Albany, which is a very attractive target. But the real target for him, and Howe is, is very much an empire man in this regard, is due uh, southwest. And of course, he's talking about the colonial capital, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is really open for business, so to speak, because of George Washington fleeing to its uh, west uh, and taking up winter encampment. So whenever... You see how making a decision in 1777. This is from the New York City perspective. He's got options. He believes all he needs is reinforcements. And he writes letters to the Secretary of State for the American Colonies, a man named Lord George Germain. And he says that, uh, I can capture Albany, but I really would like Philadelphia. Germain will ultimately decline that plan because he receives one that he believes is much better. This will bring us to one of the most important people of this episode, I think one of the most fascinating characters of the entire revolution, a man named John Burgoyne. Now, if you'll recall, John Burgoyne had been in Boston already in 1775 and 1776 before they lost the city to the Americans. He was there. Uh, and he was very much John Burgoyne as a British officer, uh, a man of his time. He loved the empire born and raised uh, in what is today the United Kingdom. Uh, he loves it there. He very much views himself as a part of it. But John Burgoyne, and this is me speaking as just someone who really likes this time period, not as someone who studies it professionally, is one of the most fascinating characters you'll see. I can't get enough of the guy because, I mean, he's like straight out of central casting in a lot of ways. Uh, he is an actor along with being a general. Uh, he fought in the Seven Years' War in Europe, but he plays up the part of being a general. He considers himself like a modern Caesar, in a way. Uh, he believes that being a general in the British Army 
means something whenever your empire rules the world. And he plays it up to the max. I mean, he's a dramatic figure. Uh, you could just imagine uh, the wilds of North America. Then you have this John Burgoyne uh, in this tent drinking the finest teas and French wines and eating the finest foods. Um, he's really something you couldn't make up. And, and like all people like that, he's incredibly politically ambitious. So while William Howe, who's done all this work to capture New York and hold it, is really trying to strategize and build off of what he's doing, John Burgoyne is really doing nothing more uh, than trying to work his way around Howe, or really position himself as the premier general of the British Empire in North America. He has a big plan, and the big plan that he builds off of is basically the one I've already explained to you, this idea of chopping the head off the snake. Uh, Burgoyne may even say that at one point, because he is so over-the-top dramatic, uh, as we'll see, uh, that that's all part of the plan. But he wants to begin this out of Quebec and march from there. Now again, if you have your map handy of what the area we're talking about is, I want you to visualize New York State, uh, the Great Lakes, and the St. Lawrence River leading to Quebec as a triangle, as a right triangle. Uh, the right angle being uh, Manhattan Island itself. What John Burgoyne wants to do is take a large army, making this very simple, uh, and go directly down the Lake Champlain, Lake George, Hudson River Corridor, and strike Albany. He wants William Howe to move northward up the Hudson River and meet him at Albany. And then, and this is sort of often an afterthought, but I think very important, he wants to send a secondary force, a smaller force. And he wants to send them down the St. Lawrence River into Lake Ontario to sort of the very western edge of New York State today and then march directly through the center of the state, bisecting it, uh, and meeting them in Albany as well. So what you're talking about is a three-pronged attack in 1777. Um, we call this the Saratoga Campaign. You may have heard that. I think it's one of the most fascinating moments of the war, and definitely a turning point. Now, we're going to go into more detail about each of these three prongs, uh, but if you think that sounds ambitious, you're right. It's almost entirely based on timing. If any one of the three groups fouls up the timing, the entire thing could fall apart. So it's ambitious, it's bold, it's probably foolish. Uh, but that's John Burgoyne to a T. And I don't think he was a tremendous general. Again, being a general in the British Empire of the time uh, is very much uh, political as much as anything. But he can really spin a nice yarn for Germain back in England. He can really, I think, show him and, and, and imbue some confidence in the administration at St. James, the King's administration, that I'm your man. I'm the one that can be successful. Again, he talks himself up. And then in the end, he actually gets his way. He has this great chance to end the American Revolution in what they think is still its infancy. And boy, does he run with it. It's one of the great, I think, ironies of the American Revolution. And it's why in season one of wartime, we began with a real discussion of the Seven Years' War in America, the French and Indian War, that the enormous investment in North America by the British Empire, uh, on behalf of really American Britons, you could say, uh, will come back to hurt them so much in less than 20 years after the war begins. But when you talk about 
the Lake Champlain, Lake George, Hudson River Corridor. Again, the British are very familiar with it. And they're familiar with it because they've defended that corridor against the French, who were in all of Canada, which they took from them, uh, for uh, decades before. And, of course, of course, if you're talking about Lake Champlain, uh, and you're talking about an invasion from the north, all of those forts that were invested by the British uh, that protected that corridor were by now in 1777 in British hands. The most important one uh, on the western shore of Lake Champlain uh, being the mighty Fort Ticonderoga. If you'll recall, Fort Ticonderoga was captured by Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys uh, in 1775, and it had stayed in American hands at that point. But by 1775, remember, uh, the Seven Years' War ended uh, almost 15 years earlier as far as Fort Ticonderoga was concerned. I mean, after 1760, you see most of the fighting in North America die off. The war continues globally for three more years. Uh, but Fort Ticonderoga really fell to disrepair, and most of their heavy guns at the beginning of the American Revolution, were taken to Boston uh, and used uh, to besiege the city. So what I'm saying is, as important as Fort Ticonderoga is uh, in the overall story, the key to the continent, the Gibraltar of North America, as that fort's called, it's really sort of in a transitory place. It's kind of forgotten. You know, when there's no more French threat, why keep it garrisoned? Why keep it supplied? And the American commander who's in Fort Ticonderoga, a man named Arthur St. Clair, is very much cognizant of that situation. Um, if he knew what was coming, it probably wouldn't be the case. But if you are John Burgoyne, and again, you have about 8,000 men moving south toward New York City, hopefully Albany, and you send, at looking at the official figures, about 2,000 uh, under the command of Barry St. Leisure, uh, which again is sort of going down the St. Lawrence to the very western edge of New York and marching across. It's very diversionary in a lot of ways. Uh, you're not going anywhere if you don't take Fort Ticonderoga. And again, John Burgoyne has such a high uh, thought of himself. He keeps himself in such high esteem, high regard. He feels very confident they'll do just that. So by June of 1777, out of Quebec, uh, the man who was in command of those British forces, Guy Carleton, has been removed from his duty. John Burgoyne has replaced him, largely effectively by kind of going around him to their superiors and having him removed. It's all very political. It's all very cutthroat. But again, the characters you meet in the story are just wonderful. Uh, Burgoyne takes his 8,000 men and begins moving south. And again, when you think of the Saratoga campaign, viewing it as this right triangle uh, for for Burgoyne moving south, he has certain benchmarks he has to hit. And one of them is he has to recapture all of those forts uh, that are now manned by Americans, which were previously manned by the British, which were originally built and won by the French. So good luck with that. And Burgoyne knows Fort Ticonderoga is going to be his big sort of cherry. He has to pick before any of this happens. Uh, well, by late June, the British roll down uh, the uh, Lake Champlain. You can, if you visit this site, you can almost see it. Uh, the ships coming down, uh, and they begin to march toward uh, Fort Ticonderoga. It's a very, uh, I guess, it really isn't that that impressive of a story. Uh, but effectively, what happens is Arthur Saint Clair is largely caught off guard, not totally, but largely caught off guard uh, by Burgoyne's arrival. He thought there may be some British forces in the area. He had no idea. 
this behemoth that was rolling south toward him. And Fort Ticonderoga will fall without really a shot being fired. I mean, you're talking about a fort that was uh, fought furiously for in the Seven Years' War. But Arthur St. Clair is so overwhelmed with the few American patriots that he has in Fort Ticonderoga, he basically abandons the site and gives John Burgoyne this tremendous victory uh, early in his campaign that, again, does not really make him feel like anything he wants to do. As outlandish as it is, it is impossible at all. Fort Ticonderoga, the mighty fort, the Gibraltar of North America, uh, falls with relative ease. And the ego and the and the anticipation of what's to come for Burgoyne's marching southward army now swells considerably. There's no doubt by this point that John Burgoyne is rolling to his target. I use that word a lot because it very much felt unstoppable at the time. But you have to remember back to our earliest discussion, again using hindsight. It's a bold plan, but it's totally based on timing. And there are two other branches of this three-branch attack. One moving south to north, William Howe in New York, and the other down the St. Lawrence and across New York State under Barry St. Ledger. Um, very much a distracting uh, part of this uh, campaign. Well, timing is everything. Burgoyne, I think, is doing his part. But you can't make promises for everyone else. And that's going to be very important. William Howe, I'll tell you from the beginning now, uh, as well as Burgoyne is doing, is never going to keep his end of the bargain, so to speak. He's never going to move his men out of New York uh, and move northward, at least not in a timely fashion that will help Burgoyne. He's preoccupied with capturing and, and, and taking Philadelphia, which he does. The British Empire will occupy the city of Philadelphia for a time, a long time. And William Howell's very proud of that. Unfortunately, in doing so, keeping it, maintaining connection of both places, he really leaves uh, Burgoyne uh, sort of hanging out to dry. Because, again, his reinforcements moving from the south were going to be a big part of this. I don't think they would be an essential part of this. Uh, but for Burgoyne, hearing that they are not on time or on pace would be a devastating effect. He won't hear for quite a while. Uh, but when he does... Uh, it, it's traumatic for his campaign in a lot of ways. Many people will look at this, they'll question it, they'll say, uh, why wasn't William Howe on the march to help Burgoyne? They'll say that there was uh, a personal animus between them. That may be true. Uh, but the reality is when you look at what William Howe was saying, what Burgoyne is saying, uh, Howe's really just bogged down in, in that word again, logistics. Uh, that are involved in occupying two cities, maintaining these cities, maintaining uh, securities for the population. Uh, I don't think he's actively trying to sabotage this. He wants the war to end as much as anyone. Uh, but the personality of Burgoyne is as such that I think it really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I think it makes for a good story to say that this was some sort of um, professional sabotage going on, but I don't think it is. But realistically, sticking to the narrative, uh, I think what's most important for our purposes uh, is that one-third of this very elaborate scheme uh, has already sort of uh, floundered before it was even launched. That does allow us, however, knowing that Burgoyne is moving south, chopping the head off the snake, uh, to talk about the uh, third branch of this attack, which to me is really right in my wheelhouse. Uh, and it's really an army comprising of 2,000 men in the western part of New York, 
uh, moving across the state. Now, if you can visualize New York, more geography, I'm sorry, it's just a, it's a big part of this, okay? Um, if you can visualize it, uh, there is a river that effectively slices the state of New York east to west in half. And this river is called the Mohawk River. And what I'd like to talk about a bit is what we call the Mohawk River Valley. Now, the Mohawk River Valley uh, is one of, I think, the, the, the most compelling places in all of colonial North America. Because you have major high-ranking British officials who live in the area, most notably Sir William Johnson, the superintendent of Indian Affairs. So that's a major player in this story. But you also have many families scattered as settlers throughout this river valley. Most are English. You do have, interestingly enough, German immigrant families living there too, who play a lesser uh, role in this. And you have uh, a vast array of Iroquois people. Remember, the Iroquois Confederation really stretches throughout the state of New York, uh, moving west to east, the Seneca, the Cayuga, the Onondaga, uh, the Oneida, and the Mohawk. I mean, you're really talking about a river that connects the Iroquoian world together, an Iroquoian world that uh, is very much in distress. What I'm saying is you have all kinds of different societal factors in the Mohawk River Valley of New York coming together in the American Revolution. And the American Revolution means something different for all of them. There are loyalists in this river valley. There are patriots in this river valley. Many of them are related, and many of them will kill each other as a result of this war. I mean, when you talk about the American Revolution, you can talk about it, if you wanted to, as a civil war. The, the war between patriots and loyalists uh, is very real. And it's very compelling, and I think a lot of the new scholarship we're getting is really sort of studying this. Uh, but this notion of neighbor versus neighbor, uh, you know, it's played out, but brother versus brother is very present there. So the Mohawk River Valley is going to be a very brutal and bloody place uh, for a lot of this story. The native factor in this is even greater, because by 1777, the Iroquois have decided we will not... Uh, be neutral any longer. Uh, they will throw their support toward the British, uh, but not all of them. Because as Barry St. Leisure, this third part of Burgoyne's army, is marching through the center now of the state to meet up with Burgoyne, he's collecting loyalists all along the way, and he's marching. Now, there is a fort right almost dead in the center of the state, near what is today Syracuse, New York. Really, it's in the heart of the, city, the town of Rome, New York, called Fort Stanwix renamed Fort Schuyler uh, after an American commander rather than the British commander. Uh, but that's a fort that's going to be uh, really critical and essential for Barry St. Leisure, this British officer, to capture on his way to meet up with Burgoyne. As he does it, uh, he meets up with an American force. Uh, there's a battle we call the Battle of Oriskany, which kind of throws all of these conflicting elements I've just mentioned together in one sort of uh, disheveled mess. It's a horrific battle, but it's one of my favorites of the entire war because it's so revealing. Let me set this up for you. If you want to know the details of the battle, the troop movements and such, you can find that. But I want to really give you the, the real red meat of this story. On one side, you have Barry St. Leisure's British soldiers with a number of American loyalists. On the other side, 
you have American Patriot Militia, the Tryon County Militia. Now, marching with the Americans, this is where I get really excited, uh, probably as you can tell, uh, are members of the Iroquois Confederacy, members of the Seneca, members of the Cayuga, the Onondaga, uh, members of the Mohawk. But with the Americans, and this is what's mind-blowing, you also have Iroquois marching in opposition, most notably the Oneida, and to a lesser degree, uh, the Tuscarora. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but understand that really for the last uh, 200 to 300 years at that point, the Iroquois Empire was a massive political force. Again, Season 1 sets us all up. But when they meet, and this will be the first time they meet on the field of battle, Iroquois versus Iroquois, this is the beginning of the end for them. This is the final death knell in their empire. What this is is a civil war for the Iroquois. Think of that. A war between American colonists and British imperialists is a civil war for an Iroquois Native American empire. It is just over the top for a, as someone who studies the sort of social impact of the American Revolution. But this Battle of Oriskany, I dedicate a whole chapter to it uh, in my book that came out in 2013, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, because it is so important to understanding how the Native peoples view this conflict and the Mohawk River Valley. Uh, is really just ground zero for the real horror of the Civil War. Civilians, uh, neighbors killing each other over what amounts to politics, in a way. The Battle of Oriskany will occur. Uh, the uh, British will continue uh, their march. Uh, but it's a horrific scene. Um, the Oneida will cement themselves uh, as a sta staunch American allies in that regard. Uh, but that's going to be a big part of this, because at the Battle of Oriskany, what it effectively does, it's a really sort of horrible, bloody uh, kind of stalemate. You do want to say there's a winner and a loser, but no one really wins a wilderness battle like that. What it does is takes another one-third of Burgoyne's uh, march, this three-pronged attack, out of the equation, and leaves Burgoyne on his own. Getting back to Burgoyne, as we finish up the episode, again, I may tend to make the battles more simple. Uh, because I think knowing why they happen is much more important than knowing exactly the precise troop movements. Uh, John Burgoyne's moving south. He's going to be facing an American commander he did not anticipate. Remember I told you General Arthur Sinclair was the American commander of Fort Ticonderoga who unceremoniously abandoned it. Uh, he'll be replaced by a man named Horatio Gates. And that will be a momentous decision for the American Congress. Because Horatio Gates will ensure that John Burgoyne never gets to Albany. We know Barry St. Leisure's westward force won't be there. We know William Howe's northward force won't be there. But Horatio Gates will make sure it doesn't happen. Horatio Gates uh, makes a pretty brave stand. There's really one road that follows the Hudson River uh, that Burgoyne can take. And it hugs the Hudson. And, and Horatio Gates will set up his sort of uh, a, a wonderful defensive posture uh, at a place uh, on high ground we call Freeman's Farm. Uh, it's north of Albany, a great deal. Uh, but as uh, Burgoyne's marching south, they'll engage in a battle, the Battle of Freeman's Farm. Uh, and this will happen in the fall of 1777. And the Americans will beat uh, the British simply because they have a superior position and they held it. 
Uh, never mind that that wonderful defensive position was built by uh, a man named Tadeusz Kosciuszko, a Polish revolutionary who was so interested in fighting rebellions, he heard there's one in America, so he was on the first boat over. Uh, but he stops Burgoyne in his tracks. About a month later, uh, what will occur is something we call the Second Battle of Saratoga. Burgoyne rolls down and once again is stonewalled. He's eventually surrounded uh, and captured. And this is a major moment uh, because John Burgoyne is forced to uh, surrender. Now, one of the things about Burgoyne, after being beaten by the Americans, you have to understand, is that his ego cannot take the loss because this was his ticket to future fame and fortune in the empire. So what uh, one of the things that uh, John Burgoyne says is that he says uh, to Gates, can we not call this a surrender or a capitulation? Uh, he says, can we call this a convention? And Horatio Gates, the American commander, says, yeah, whatever you want to call it, uh, you're done, you're finished. Whatever your fragile ego needs, uh, convention, if that makes you feel better, you can have it. So you have this very famous scene in the very end of 1777 in New York of John Burgoyne giving up his sword. Effectively, the British Empire sort of big major assault uh, on uh, cutting the American colonies in half come to a, a pretty conclusive end. And this is a major moment for the Americans because Horatio Gates' victories uh, at Saratoga, Freeman's Farm, the two battles, are not like Washington's previous victories. These are not uh, cheap shots. These are not dirty tricks. Uh, these are not sneak attacks. What Horatio Gates does at Saratoga uh, is right out of the military handbook. He went toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He used superior tactics and defensive position to fight off the mighty British army, and he captured their general and their army as a result. Now, the crux of this all. Why is this so important? Why does it matter? There's one thing I want you to know about the Battle of Saratoga. Really, the battles of Saratoga. They happened about a month apart. There's two of them. And it's this. If you only remember this, I'd be just fine with it. There are very interested parties watching the American Revolution to this point, and they are not happy with what they're seeing. Remember in 1763, you had that whole mess of the largest war in world history, the Seven Years' War between Britain and France, and Britain effectively stripped France of its empire. Well, believe it or not, even though it's only 14 years later, they're still pretty sore about that. Go figure. And when the French are watching the American Revolution, they're seeing an opportunity. They don't really care about the Americans. They're very immaterial here. But it's very much an enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation. It's very much what the Soviets do to the Americans in Vietnam and what the Americans do to the Soviets in Afghanistan. The French are effectively saying, we're not going to start a war against these guys. We are really financially crippled from the last one. But there's nothing to say we can't help the people who are actually shooting at them. And in this case, it happens to be the Americans. If uh, Horatio Gates is not victorious in 1777 at the Battles of Saratoga, and it's a national park, I'd encourage you to visit it. In fact, go all the way up to Fort Ticonderoga make a trip of it. If that doesn't happen, the French uh, are not interested in the war. I mean, they've seen Washington putting up a fight, but they've seen what we've seen. It looks to be a losing effort, a small ragtag army against the world's most powerful military force. But after Saratoga, the French begin to realize these guys might have a chance. It's not set in stone, it's not 
very promising. But they know that Horatio Gates went toe-to-toe with John Burgoyne, the best the British had to offer at the time. And he beat them, and he beat them convincingly. This will effectively convince the French that the American Revolution is worth their time, and more importantly, worth their money. The French will begin to pour money into the American cause, and every problem that George Washington has, not enough money to pay his men, not enough supplies, not enough shoes, not enough guns, not enough weapons, not enough soldiers, all of these things will disappear overnight. Why? Because money is being funneled and fused through back channels into this rebel cause. Now, a lot of people today in America don't like the French. For whatever reason, listen, the French are not an easy people to like uh, if you have, uh, I guess, more conservative sensibilities. But make no mistake, if not for the French, uh, if you are an American today, you all have different passports. On the next episode, we'll deal with the year 1778, the Global American Revolution. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.